It's go time. You're listening live to Third Down Gamble. First Down. Welcome everyone to Third Down Gamble. Don Charbon along with Pat Mooney and Heath Graham. Lots to talk about as we say every week. This week, no different. A lot more positive news overall, but certainly some fascinating news. Let's start with the Edmonton Elk situation. They do sign to extension Nick Arbuckle, quarterback that they received in trade from Toronto. As a result of that, the part of the deal that was with Toronto was that third round pick that would move to a second if the Elks could sign the extension they have. So now the Argonauts benefit from that by getting a higher pick in the draft. I agree. And this could spell the end of the Taylor Cornelius era in Edmonton. He's had a few starts, but I'm sure with a one-year contract extension, the powers that be in Edmonton are eager to get Nick Arbuckle into that lineup and see what he brings as they try to right the ship in Edmonton. I do feel a lot of angst for Cornelius. Just don't understand what the Elks are trying to do with him. On the one hand, he did have time with Coach Elizondo in the XFL. They brought him up. They move Harris. Cornelius has got to be on some level thinking that, okay, they want me now to really embrace this and take advantage of it. And within a week, they go after Arbuckle. Now, I know... Edmonton is looking for experience at the quarterback position. Prukop is probably the odd man out in all of this. Dakota Prukop, who they ironically had picked up, spent time in Toronto. The question I have for Cornelius is where is his head at going into this week's game against the Rough Riders? I don't know how confident I'd feel if within a span of seven days, a quarterback with experience goes and another one comes in. I don't think that a quarterback who has the lack of experience in CFL that Cornelius does is ever going to feel comfortable initially when you first start. His starts, he's, there's been times when he's been good, there's been times when he struggled, but when you bring a veteran quarterback in that you can work with, which he would have had before in Harris, now he's going to have in Arbuckle. I think if he's shown enough in the games that he's played, he may still have an option at, at being a backup on the Elks. But isn't that a demotion? It is, but can you really walk in and play a few games and expect to start in the league? I, I don't think that's happened with many quarterbacks. The odd one has actually had that opportunity, but someone with his lack of experience in the CFL can take this as a learning experience. He's had more gameplay than a lot of quarterbacks with his same amount of time in the CFL. And that might bode well for him in the future as he can sit back and learn a bit more about the game and the coaches have seen what he can do. They know he's a mobile quarterback. He may have opportunities in time to get back to that stage. But at this point, it looks like they are going to go with Arbuckle. I wouldn't consider it a demotion because I'm not sure he was ever anointed as the starting quarterback necessarily. There was a very small window, as you alluded to, of Harris leaving before Arbuckle came in. So it was maybe a week or less that he was the de facto number one quarterback in Edmonton, but he hasn't shown enough in my mind to really be in the running at this point as the number one guy in Edmonton. The team deciding to bring Nick Arbuckle in makes a lot of sense. I'm not necessarily opposed to Arbuckle coming to Edmonton. What I'm musing about is Taylor Cornelius and looking at the remainder of the season. Cornelius could have been the starting quarterback 
through this season. After they lost to Hamilton, they've got nothing in the playoff chase anymore. That leaves them with what? And this is the question that I have. What What is the final set of games for the Elks? Are they about developing for the future and maybe working with what you have? Or is it about trying to find an answer from without, which they already looked with Arbuckle, and do it that route? I'm kind of a fan of... If you invested enough in a guy to put him out there now, why not leave him there for the rest of the season and then decide at the end of the year? Well, my short answer to that is because of the way that the crowds in Edmonton are trending right now. Taylor Cornelius isn't putting fans in those seats. We've seen attendance numbers steadily on the decline in Edmonton. So if the Nick Arbuckle era starts three games remaining in this season and it can drum up a little bit of excitement and get some eyes back on that team. I think it's the best move for the club. I would also say that having Arbuckle come in is a good thing right now because you also want to build for the future. He is also a quarterback that's had limited starts as a starter in the CFL. And I think you've got to see what you've got so you can build some strength. And if this coaching team is still going to be with the Elks next year, They've got to take a look at what they have and build an offense around the strengths. And even if they're not, I think the organization itself wants to know what they have and how they can build for the future with Nick Arbuckle. And hopefully it is a competition with Cornelius. You've signed him to a one-year extension. When you come to training camp, Arbuckle's limited as well. So who's the better of the two? And you move forward from that point. Calgary Stampeders have brought back a familiar face. Reggie Bagleton is back from the NFL and he has signed with the Stampeders for the rest of the season. Huge get for the Stampeders in their playoff push. That will uh, definitely help Bo Levi Mitchell there. I'm not sure which receiver now will be the odd person out when Bagleton moves into the lineup. But of course, he's got the protocol. The great thing about this is the timing for the Stampeders couldn't have been any better. They've got the bye this weekend. He'll be available when they hit the field again. Anytime a team can sign a receiver of the quality of Reggie Bagleton, you want to do that. The fact that he has familiarity with Bo Levi Mitchell, I think he's going to be able to step right back in this offense and hopefully be a contributor soon. The week off certainly helps. Um, it, it shortens things, but he's going to have to be a quick study. But he's worked in this offense. He's worked with this quarterback and he's worked with the offensive coordinator. So I think he should be a natural fit. And what a get. We've certainly seen all three of the current playoff teams in the West make some moves over the recent weeks to get better. And this is one more move for Calgary. We saw the Rough Riders bring in Duke Williams as a receiver to improve their core. We saw the Winnipeg Blue Bombers bring one of their star defensive backs back into the lineup that had a little bit of time in the NFL, Winston Rose. And this is kind of the arms race, I believe, in the West right now as to which team can get those solid pieces in place for the playoffs. Speaking of those Stampeders, let's get into the recap of the week that was in the CFL last weekend. The Stamps and the Ottawa Red Blacks opened the schedule on Friday night. Calgary winning 26-13. Decent crowd on hand to watch the game. Bo Levi Mitchell, despite playing poorly against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, plays much better against Ottawa. Goes 22-29 of 29 for 242 yards. Quarterbacking of Caleb Evans, I thought was reasonable. 15 of 29 for 173 and a touchdown pass. The problem for Evans, and we've, and especially Pat has elocuted, he just doesn't have any time back there to really set up. 
Here's a case where the Ottawa Red Blacks seem to hang in the game for the first half again, and uh, as the game wears on, the other teams seem to get stronger, and or Ottawa seems to lack the ability to to adjust. And Caleb Evans was running for his life once again. It's hard to play in that type of situation, but we talked about quarterbacks before, and here's one that I think will have a future in the CFL, and and he has been anointed the starter, I think, at this point. Any playing opportunity they can get is only going to help make him better as as we go through the end of the year. To your point, Pat, I think a big move for the new GM in Ottawa this year will be offensive line. I think they need to throw money at offensive linemen that are coming into free agency. They probably need to draft an offensive lineman or two as well. If that ever becomes the strength up front for this team, a quarterback like Caleb Evans can be very exciting to watch. We saw eight carries for 68 yards again. So when he has the ability to get outside and and tuck and run, he's successful. He can move the chains. So if they can keep him upright in the passing plays and use that scrambling ability, then he's going to be exciting and the future is bright for Caleb Evans. Calgary didn't really worry about the rushing game once Kadeem Carey got going. 103 yards on 16 carries. He only had a couple of down weeks, and other than that, he's been extremely consistent. Yes, he has been, and it seems the weeks that he's off are the weeks that I have him in fantasy. Good to see him getting back on track this week because I left him off my roster, and this is the result. He's quietly moved into the second place in the uh, rushing of the CFL. He has 784 yards in the CFL in total, uh, overpassing both Wilder and Powell, who many would have figured may have finished in front of him. So he has really shown strength in the back half of the season, and I think that bodes well moving into the playoffs when it's cold to have a solid running game is going to help both Levi Mitchell and the Calgary Stampeders. Nathaniel Behar was the leading receiver for the Red Blacks, five catches, 98 yards. Kamar Jordan for the Stampeders, six catches for 79. A lot of even distribution on both sides of the ball. A real tail off on offense, especially for Ottawa. The, the defense does what they can, but it seems to kind of get away from them. And this one, realistically... At halftime, they were in it. Early in the second half, they were in it. And then Calgary really only scored one touchdown and a couple of field goals in the second half. So it's not like the Stampeders were lights out. It just was enough that the Red Blacks couldn't keep pace. The late game Friday night, the Hamilton Tiger Cats were in Edmonton to take on the Elks. And the Elks, they have now lost all six to date of their home games, this time 39-23. to Hamilton got off to a very quick start, scoring two touchdowns in the opening quarter. In fact, had 27 points by halftime. We're up 27 to 4. Edmonton picked up a few points in garbage time to make the score a little bit respectable. But truthfully, the Ticats really owned this game. Jeremiah Mazzoli, 17 of 24 for 357 yards and three touchdowns for Hamilton. The flip side, Taylor Cornelius, 19 of 33 for 251. I would say much like the Calgary Stampeders, the Hamilton Tiger Cats seem to be heating up at the right time, making that run towards the playoffs. Jeremiah Mazzoli, over the last couple of weeks, certainly has looked like the outstanding quarterback that we saw in 2018 and 2019 before his injury. And this is a matter of that offense starting to click at the right time. Adding a running back like Don Jackson, who had a great night as well, 16 carries for 120 yards, definitely helps. Uh, you know, if you've got a court quarterback who's on like Mazzoli seems to be these last few games and you can add a solid running game I think you have to think Hamilton's got a good shot at pressing back for first place in the east big time story coming out of this game this happens between James Wilder Jr. and Simone Lawrence 
Wilder Jr. misses on an out pass, and Simone Lawrence, the linebacker for the Tiger Cats, comes up and basically drills him in the backside. Wilder turns around, sees who it is, and remembers that not many minutes before, Simone Lawrence had earholed him with his helmet when he was caught up in the line. Wilder took matters into his own hands and went after Lawrence, and the melee ensued. We did see a couple of ejections from this game as well. Unfortunately, both kind of boneheaded moves. The uh, Edmonton Elks had a player come onto the field and join the fray and gets tossed. And then the Tiger Cats had a player ejected for spitting on an opponent, which is something that to me is the epitome of poor sportsmanship. I don't even know how to define the the act of spitting on an, on an opponent in an event like this. I think the referees and officials did a great job of getting these calls right. Both players that were disqualified deservedly were ejected from this game. And it comes down to Simone Lawrence kind of being that instigator that was the, I think, the root cause of this scrum. Simone Lawrence is a great linebacker, but he certainly has a bit of a reputation for taking some of those shots over his career. And I understand how someone like Wilder, who did take a a tough hit right to the head from him moments earlier, can respond with anger like he did. Uh, Simone Lawrence, I think, has a tendency to take some cheap shots, even though he's such a high caliber linebacker. And he's starting to get that reputation where players get frustrated when that happens. It was Jonathan Rose who came off the bench to get involved in the action. And just like in hockey, first man off, any man off in football, truthfully, and you walk onto the field when you're not supposed to be there, you are in big trouble. The spitting, that that's such a vile act. It's one thing if you're engaged with somebody and you're pushing back and forth. or And it was Cameron Kelly for the Tiger Cats was the player that was disqualified for that disgusting move. Eventually things settle down. The ejections do what they need to do and settle the teams down. And they play football for the rest of the way. I do wonder if the league will take a look at this at some point and decide whether or not there's supplementary discipline. In terms of Simone Lawrence, again, having that history of taking some shots, some of the plays earlier, I think the league needs to take a look at and the fact that he's not a first-time offender. We know in terms of concussion protocol, bullet point number one when it comes to do not do this Lead with the crown of the helmet and you are driving a ton of energy into someone's cranium. And Wilder Jr., I'm surprised, to be quite honest, that he was still with it after that shot. Because we've seen other people get knocked senseless with the same type of hit to the side of the head. There's a lot of respect for defensive players that play hard and physical but play the the right way. You look at somebody like Enoch Mwamba or Adam Big Hill, and those are some of the elite linebackers in this league and sure they're often really pushing that line but they know where the line is and and they do their best to not go over it so money lawrence in my opinion doesn't really seem to care where that line is at times and he'll take that extra shot i'm just a little surprised that the booth didn't get involved i know maybe they can't maybe by rule they're not allowed to wouldn't it have been worth it in that circumstance? And I think if the booth does not get involved, then the CFL does need to take a look at this because certainly you don't want your marquee players or any players for that matter potentially losing their livelihood over what could be termed a cheap shot. I agree with you, Pat. If player safety is important to the league as they say it is, then protect the players and use the video booth and those opportunities to look at rough play 
to get it out of the game, especially shots to the head that can be so dangerous and really put somebody's career in jeopardy. Saturday, we move to Toronto and the Toronto Argonauts hosting the British Columbia Lions. What a wild, wild, wild game. If you wanted an emotional roller coaster, all you have to do is watch the last three minutes of that football game and then the overtime. It is just so unbelievable. Toronto hangs on and wins 31 to 29 over British Columbia in overtime. So many storylines that come out of this game. Let's start with Jimmy Camacho. He had a fourth quarter to forget. Were it not for some key misses, that game doesn't go to overtime. And we're not even talking about Ryan Dinwiddie and his clock management because the game is over. But he missed three fourth quarter field goals and they were lucky to even get into overtime. Fortunately for him, the the last miss was a 37-yarder and he had enough leg to punch it right through the back of the end zone for the single point. Ironically... He had done that twice in the quarter. Missed a 37-yarder with about five and a half minutes to go that went for a single point before he would miss a 50-yarder that I don't know if he ever elevated the ball high enough to get it over the offensive line. I think it hit one of them in the back of the helmet. That miss then precipitates what happens next where Toronto get the ball up to about their 11-yard line and then for whatever reason, nobody is aware on the Toronto sideline that the Lions still have a timeout left. So Toronto goes into victory formation and starts kneeling down on thinking that the game is over. They've won. There's 45 seconds left when they start the, the drive and they're literally just taking a knee. Even after the timeout, they went back into victory formation. They kneeled again. Jim Barker on the TSN panel mentioned that there's a 45-second rule when it comes to running out the clock in the last three minutes. That's about the most you can do without getting a first down. You get about five, three to five seconds on the first play because you're coming off a timeout. Then you run 20 to 21, depending on how long you can stand up on the next two plays, and you get 45 seconds roughly that you control. Toronto apparently wasn't aware that BC had the timeout, so they could not control that 45 seconds, and they have to punt the ball away. Camacho has another final chance, and fortunately for them, he's wide right for a second time in the quarter. I thought Jim Barker did a great job of breaking down how the last couple of minutes of a game go from a coach's perspective, and the most unbelievable part of this whole situation was, as you mentioned, coming out of the timeout and taking a knee the second time. Run a play, do something to try to get a first down and the game is over. I I just didn't understand. The first one I'll write off as a mistake. Coach Dinwiddie and the rest of the crew missed that one. They made a, a costly error and took the knee, but somebody do the math on that sideline after the timeout and, and recognize that if you run a play and get some more yardage. A, you're not kicking it from as far away, and B, you're going to take a little bit more time off that clock or maybe even get a first down and end the game. Here are the people that could have informed Dinwiddie as to what he needed to do. You've got Jerry's Jackson, been in the CFL a long time. Mark Nelson, been in the CFL a long time. Kevin Ivan, been in the CFL a long time. Stephen McAdoo, been in the CFL a long time. Marcus Howell, been in the CFL a long time. Rich Stubler, been in the CFL a long time. Chris Jones, been in the CFL a long time. That is a lot of veteran coaching that missed the boat on that. I think it would be interesting to be in the locker room of the Toronto Organauts because you always want to have faith that your coach is going to put you in a good situation to win the game. When a coach makes a faux pas as obvious and as dreadful as 
the one that was made by Dinwiddie. I, I think he has potential to lose the room unless he comes back and, and owns it and learns from it. As Coach Barker said, he did that once before. Dinwiddie can never make this mistake again, or he will absolutely lose some of the faith the players have that their coaches are going to put them in a position to win. Let's go back to October 22nd when Eugene Lewis for the Montreal Alouettes catches a touchdown pass. It's only on replay that you realize that he's pulled the hair of Treston DeCoud down to the field to create space to catch the football. Dinwiddie has the replay, but is not completely aware that pulling the hair can constitute offensive pass interference. Of course, hair is considered part of the jersey, a part of the equipment. That should have been an offensive pass interference. And at halftime, when he was asked about this, he seemed a little dumbfounded that you could actually pursue this. There is either one of two things happening. Either Dinwiddie is not apprising himself of all the nuances of the Canadian Football League game, which I find hard to believe since he's been here 15 years. Or secondly, someone in that coach's group is not communicating quickly enough and strongly enough to Dinwiddie to tell him this is an option for us. Of those two options, I, I have to believe it's the second one. A head coach can't be responsible for every decision. He's got to surround himself with coaches who have an understanding of the game and, and are prepared for situational occurrences like this. And in this case, the coaches as a whole, when I say Dinwiddie before will lose the room, it's the coaches because the players have to believe their coaches are going to make the right decision. A couple of things that stood out once the game got to overtime. McLeod Bethel-Thompson was finally successful on a two-point conversion attempt. He had had a couple picked off in recent weeks. So they marched down the field, get the touchdown, get the two-point convert to take the lead. The BC Lions very quickly come back and match. I think it was a four-play drive, came up short on the two-point convert. It looks like the receiver and the quarterback kind of got mixed up on their signals a little bit. Riley went to the outside, the receiver went to the inside, and the two-point convert attempt just kind of dropped in no man's land. Shaq Johnson, who didn't connect with Riley in that two-point conversion to tie the game at the end of the first overtime, Johnson, to me, looked like he ran up against the defender and broke the pattern, and Riley threw it like he was going to continue on. I do have to say Toronto defense on the scoring play just seemed out to lunch. That that was such an easy uh, catch and, and walk into the end zone that uh, BC had some momentum, but uh, again, to fail on the two points was certainly disheartening when they had the game one if Camacho could just make one of those field goals. Michael Riley really had a good game, I thought, despite uh, his foibles from previous weeks. 20 of 38, 290 yards, three touchdowns, and one interception. McLeod Bethel-Thompson, bit of an up-and-down game, 23 of 37 for 155 yards, did get a touchdown and did get an ill-timed pass for an interception that went for a score. Tavares Daniels was the leading receiver for the Argonauts, Six catches, 51 yards. Brian Burnham finally broke through. Five catches, 96 yards, and a big touchdown for the BC Lions. The problem for BC is it may be too little too late getting all of this offense together after weeks of borderline ineptitude. Almost hard to believe that the BC Lions have gone on this five-game losing streak. The, the caliber of that team, it seems like at some point everything's got to click, but the wheels have kind of come off for BC and they can't buy a win. And on the other side, let's not forget that one of those completions by McLeod Bethel-Thompson was to himself 
for a seven-yard reception. There was a ball tipped by a defensive lineman back into Bethel Thompson's hands, and he was smart enough and savvy enough to quickly pull it down and run ahead, picked up seven yards on that play. It's always fun when you see those kinds of plays. Unfortunate for the Lions, it's a big loss in terms of their playoff hopes. The Rough Riders go into Montreal. If you like defense, you saw a ton of it. Saskatchewan holding out and winning 19-14 over the Alouettes. Cody Fajardo, 14 of 25 for 158 yards. Matt Schiltz, 7 of 13 for 106. And his replacement, Trevor Harris, 12 of 15 for 123. Not exactly booming numbers when it comes to passing. It wasn't, but it looks like we may be seeing Trevor Harris as the starting quarterback for the Montreal Alouettes for the rest of the season, or certainly until Vernon Adams is healthy enough to get some competition back there. And this was definitely the worst start that we've seen from Matt Schiltz since he's taken over for Vernon Adams. And Trevor Harris, frankly, looked pretty good out there in the the short amount of time he's been with Montreal. 12 of 15 for 123 yards is a pretty decent uh, relief appearance by Trevor Harris. Not enough to steal the win back for Montreal, but it might be enough to get him the starting job for the next couple of weeks. 11 quarterback sacks between the two teams, six by Montreal, five by Saskatchewan. The turning point in the game was a Luches Purifoy interception with about two minutes to go in the first half. He catches the ball and returns it to almost midfield, and the Riders take it and move down the field and score a touchdown. At that moment, had that not happened, Saskatchewan would have gone into the locker room down three to nothing. It was absolutely a turning point, and it was interesting to hear from Luchas Purifoy that he used his film work to actually see that play potentially coming. And he recognized that, hey, this receiver's likely to run a dig route. And then to have it actually occur where you can step in front of it, it seemed to light a fire under Saskatchewan as much as their offense struggled in the, in the first half. Once they had the interception, they were, at, for the first time, able to get to the end zone successfully. That short drive at the end of the first half and, and early in the second half was the best that Cody Fajardo looked all night. It definitely did give that offense a little bit of a spark, starting with a shorter field and a bit of a hurry-up offense. They marched down and got that touchdown to end the first half and looked good doing it. Saskatchewan may have hidden the reason why they signed Duke Williams. We all thought it was because of his receiving ability, but apparently it's his short kick ability that they really wanted because once again, Duke Williams snags an attempted short kick against the Rough Riders. I had to actually look at that play twice because unlike last week where he went up high and used his big frame to get to the ball, this one he caught the ball down by his hip and I was actually surprised that someone hadn't touched it before that and and he came out of it with a you know almost a free run for a period of time until he was caught from the side. It was kind of surprising that he came down with it in the video but he seems to have the magic touch. It was an amazing catch. It looked like there was a lot of potential for a collision and a ball up for grabs and he managed to pull that one right out of the air like you said waist high and I think before the Alouettes realized that it was in his hands he was gone down the field. Incredibly two Alouette players run past the ball as it's coming towards Williams. I don't know what they thought was supposed to happen but neither one of them looked up to see that the ball was right there and they just blew right past him I'm sure Williams was as surprised as everybody. The game ends for Montreal when Harris throws a third down pass to somewhere. 
on the sideline. There was no receiver in the area. And that, I think, speaks to the lack of preparation in terms of reps. Saskatchewan, with the win, clinch a playoff spot. They don't clinch a home playoff date, but they are in the Western playoff. Second down. Another four-game set for Week 14 in the Canadian Football League. Let's get started with Friday night, the first of the uh, doubleheader. The British Columbia Lions are in Hamilton. BC staying out east through this. After their game in Toronto, they just decided to hotel it. They are plus 6.5 against the Ticats, who just were in Edmonton and now have made the trip back. Hamilton, Jeremiah Mazzoli is looking like the Jeremiah Mazzoli we expected. Plus 6.5 for BC. I think a little bit of that is based on how well Michael Riley played against Toronto. It would have to be, but I still think Hamilton's going to cover six and a half points fairly easily. BC is a team in, in some turmoil right now, and Hamilton is starting to fire on all cylinders. Jeremiah Mazzoli, as you mentioned, looks fantastic over these last couple of weeks. So I strongly see the losing streak continue for the BC Lions, unfortunately for them. And Hamilton rolls off another win as they battle for first place in the East. The Lions have signed place kicker Nick Vogel because of protocol with COVID. He will not be available to the team for this game, but that is a sign to Jimmy Camacho that unless he gets it done in Hamilton, his career will be short-lived in the Canadian Football League. British Columbia has to win. They have to win this football game if they have any prayer about making the playoffs. If Montreal wins and the Lions cannot cross over, the Lions then would have to focus on the West, and that means they can only catch one team, and that's the Stampeders. They'd have to win out in the Stampeders to lose out. I have to agree with Heath on this one. I I don't think BC is going to win this game. I think Hamilton will cover that spread easily. Where I do think you might uh, see something is on the line with 43.5 being the total score. I think we could go over in this game if Michael Riley does do something in the air, but I think Hamilton right now is, is really gearing up for the playoffs, and I think they're going to take this one. Weather may be the limiting factor in terms of the amount of scoring. We are getting into November. 43.5 is a little high. I kind of wonder if we'll be a little lower. However, if we think back to the last time these two teams met in Hamilton, it was a shootout. Dane Evans rallied the Ticats against the Lions to pull it out. I'm going to go with Pat's pick on this one and take the over 43 and a half as well. I, I believe that there are going to be a lot of points scored in this game. Uh, you know, the BC Lions did look a little bit better offensively against Toronto last week and the way Hamilton's going as well. I think that 43 and a half is in, in danger of being run over. The late game on Friday night is Saskatchewan in Edmonton to take on the Elks. The Elks trying to snap out of a home losing skid that goes back to 2019. They haven't won a home game in 2021. The Rough Riders are minus 6.0 favorites. James Wilder Jr. has an ankle issue. Ellingson is doubtful for the game. Darrell Walker is doubtful for the game. That's a lot of Edmonton offensive weapons that may not be available. And yet Saskatchewan has had a propensity in the last few games to have other teams come back near the end and get this score close. Uh, at the end of the day, I do think Saskatchewan's going to win this, but I'm not sure they're actually going to cover it. Edmonton has an explosive offense and, and leads Saskatchewan in almost every category. 
Edmonton passes for 263 yards versus Saskatchewan at 233. The rushing is about even, but the total yards per game does go to Edmonton now. The weather's going to be nice Friday night. It looks like a high of plus nine and a low of minus one. The one concern I would have is Saskatchewan, is this potentially a trap game? Edmonton's playing with really nothing to lose here. And Saskatchewan has everything to gain in staying ahead. And this could be a tough one where Edmonton may play a above at home when we're expecting them to lose they might actually come out strong one thing you mentioned some missing receivers for the Edmonton Elks let's not forget that Saskatchewan is missing a key receiver right now as well Kyron Moore he is out with a knee injury that's an offensive weapon that's not going to be available for Cody Fajardo I'm definitely taking the under 46 points in this one I think we haven't seen a lot of high octane offense for the Rough Riders this year. I, I do think they win. They will guarantee that the Edmonton Elks will be winless at home this season. And I think they will cover the six-point spread, but uh, 46 points, I don't think that these two teams combined right now are going to get that number. It's the first of back-to-back games between the Elks and the Rough Riders. This, of course, was flipped from what it had been originally scheduled. This game was supposed to be played in Regina originally. But because of the COVID situation way back at the beginning of the season in August, this was part of the compensation that they had to make with the schedule to get the Elks games in at the end of the season. So Saskatchewan flipped their home date with Edmonton. Saskatchewan's defense is really rounding into shape. And I think Jason Shivers has really done a masterful job of changing up the look of that defense. They look pretty staid against the Stampeders in the first two games that they played them. They then, it seemed like, unleashed the rest of the playbook in that third game. And since then, they took a very high-octane Montreal Alouettes offense, which is leading the league in many categories, and shut it right down. I would have to agree with both of you and take the under as well. Do we see Nick Arbuckle in this one? That's a great question. Saturday, another doubleheader. The Toronto Argonauts are in Ottawa. A game against the Ottawa Red Blacks. Toronto minus 10.5 over under of 45.5. And let's just remember that these odds are powered by Bet Regal, and we thank them for that. And these are all, of course, out on Tuesday night when we record. They may change by game time. The big thing with Ottawa, if they start quick, big quick, they have a chance. Chris Jones against Caleb Evans, that's... A fascinating storyline. I'm leaning towards taking Toronto to win the game, but I believe Ottawa beats the spread of 10.5 points. We've seen Ottawa keep it close in the first half of games, and I believe they're going to do the same this time around. They don't quite have the horses to run the distance with Toronto, so the Argonauts still come out ahead. 45.5 point over under, and I'm going to take the under on this one as well. Is it going to rain in Ottawa? Probably. There seems to be a pretty good chance these days. <laughs> as long as it doesn't snow. <laughs> you know, Heath, I, I agree with you. I think this one is going to be a low-scoring game. I do see Toronto being able to cover that 10.5, which means that I'm not putting much faith in the Ottawa offense to be able to put many points on the board. And I think that that shows with this line. Toronto should be able to cover this one and take the win. Dwayne Ford has tossed his name into the Ottawa Red Blacks GM search. If there's a guy that knows Canadian content, it's Dwayne Ford. I hope he gets a really serious look. I strongly believe that Dwayne Ford would be a very capable GM in this league. And his knowledge of Canadian talent, 
is really second to none as far as I'm concerned. He does a great job with the draft every year. He knows these players inside and out. Another name that came up as a possible GM that I read earlier this week is former TSN personality Rod Black, and we might be staring at Rod Black's Red Blacks in 2022. (laughs) I love it. I love alliteration. That being said, I believe Dwayne Ford would be the better GM than Rod Black, but... Uh, Absolutely. He might know a little bit more about football. The late game Saturday, the Alouettes are in Winnipeg to take on the Blue Bombers. The Alouettes are plus 12 in Winnipeg. Trevor Harris will be the starting quarterback for the Alouettes. This one is a really tough call. We know that Winnipeg did clinch first place overall a couple of weeks ago. So they have that home date on December 5th for the Western Final already locked up. You might see some players getting rested a little bit and not playing their regular rotations throughout this game. We have seen Winnipeg give Trevor Harris fits already earlier this season as well. If we remember back to Trevor Harris in his last trip to Winnipeg, he was 9 of 22 for 87 yards. That spelled the end of the tour with him and the Edmonton Elks. 12 points seems like a huge spread considering that the Bombers have wrapped things up. I mean, given their history of what they've done this season, it's not an unreasonable line. I believe it's going to be a bit closer than that. I I still think Winnipeg has bought into Coach O'Shea's mantra of we want to go 1-0 every week, so they will continue to play hard regardless of which players are on the field. Winnipeg gets the win, Montreal covers the spread, and we go under the 45 points. If Trevor Harris can come in and have a great game, throwing 80% like he did last week when he entered the game, this game could be closer than we think. And I agree, Heath. I think you'll see Winnipeg at least rest some players, even if they do dress many of their starters. I think you'll see an opportunity for others to get into the game because you don't want to risk someone, particularly if a game does get out of hand. So for that reason, I would take the under on the 12. I do think the Blue Bombers should be able to carry this game, though. Pool tracker update. And it was a very strong week for everybody involved in the pool. A lot of people had a perfect four for four week. Most most of the rest of the crew had a nine out of a possible 10 points going three out of four correct. So not really any change at the top of the leaderboard. Anilio Estevez continues to lead. Dini 13 is one point back and Gromit 1996 is two points back. So we're getting down to crunch time here and it's a, a real tough leaderboard and it's great to see that we're actually seeming to know what we're doing when we're making these picks now the uh the the percentages are going up as a couple of really strong weeks and three out of four and four out of four across the board third down it is fantasy player pick time i'll go first This week for my quarterback and running back, I've got Jeremiah Mazzoli playing the BC Lions. 11,200 fantasy points per game of 20.4. And I'm taking John White, the fourth, Toronto at Ottawa. Opponent's rank is eighth, 6,800 Heath. I'm shadowing you on Jeremiah Mazzoli. I think he's been on fire over the last couple of weeks, and hopefully that continues for at least one more. And for running back, I am going with James Butler for the BC Lions at 5,600. It's three for three with Mazzoli at quarterback, and I am going to reach out and hope that he gets the start. Don Jackson and Hamilton, $5,000. Wide receiver, I am 
going with Kenny Lawler Jr. of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, 9,200, FPPG of 16.9. And I'm staying out west with my next pick, Braden Lenius of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. More of a bargain uh, deal for me, $4,500, averaging 7.9 per game. Heath. Winnipeg Blue Bombers on the other side, Rashid Bailey at 7000 and Steve Dunbar Jr. from the Hamilton Tiger Cats, 5800 I'm also taking Lawler Jr. with Winnipeg at 9200 and I'm also going with Chandler Worthy with Toronto for 7200 In my flex department, I'm going with Tim White of the Tiger Cats, 5900 11.4 per game. Chandler Worthy, I'm with Pat on this one, 12.9 fantasy points per game. Because they're playing the Ottawa Red Blacks, I'm taking a couple of Toronto Argonauts as my flex players. Ricky Collins Jr. at 8,500 and Curly Gittens Jr. at 6,900. Braden Lenius with Saskatchewan at 4,500 and and I'm also taking DJ Foster with Toronto, 7,700. Finally, with defense, I'm going with the Rough Riders against the Elks, $4,800. Fantasy points per game of 10.1. Heath. I am taking the Hamilton Tiger Cats at 5,000, also at 10.1 fantasy points per game, so matching the Rough Riders on that one. And I'm taking the Argonauts. They have a fantasy points per game of 7.7, but they are playing the ninth place team in Ottawa. They cost 5,200. Final thoughts, Heath. Well, once again, it's getting down to crunch time for those playoff spots, and I'm really keeping an eye on that East Division. can be a lot of movement between those three teams vying for the first overall spot in the East. Pat? I absolutely agree. I think watching the Eastern teams is going to be that race for the playoffs. Of course, we do have uh, Calgary-Saskatchewan, but with the bye this week, Saskatchewan's got to take a win here to stay ahead of Calgary in the race for second in the West. It all is predicated on BC winning in Hamilton. If BC wins in Hamilton, then the game on the 12th of November, Calgary at BC becomes giant. Calgary finishes the season at home against Winnipeg, and BC catches Edmonton on the third of three games and seven nights. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble Podcast. Audio. Worth watching.